Welcome to Concept to Cover. I'm Leah Nicholson, your host and book production manager. Join us on this dynamic podcast where we dive into the art of custom book publishing and ghostwriting. In engaging conversations with experts, discover the secrets to transforming your ideas into purposeful and inspiring publications. Whether you're a seasoned writer or just curious, Concept to Cover is your go-to source for insights that empower your literary journey. Welcome to Concept to Cover, a Jenkins Group podcast. This week, we're joining conversation by Devin Ritter. Devin is the chief manuscript editor for science and economic journals at the University of Chicago Press. Devin has also been a freelance editor for Jenkins Group for more than 24 years. And Devin, I could be wrong on that. I was sort of taking a guess. Is it 24 years or how many years has it been that you've been working with Jenkins Group? I think it's pretty darn close. That number just sounds so strange to me. It seems like it was yesterday. Wow, that's a long time. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of Concept to Cover. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to be an editor for Books and Journals? Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Leah. This is a real big honor, and I really am such a supporter of Jenkins and just love being a part of your team. So I'm happy to talk about what I do and how I do it. So I think there's someone wiser than me once said that all editors are failed writers. I think that's a little bit of my story. When I was growing up, I just always knew I wanted to be a writer. And so I worked all throughout school toward that kind of goal, picking a college. I knew I wanted to study journalism. So I went to the University of Missouri-Columbia, which has an excellent program for journalism, editing journalism of all kinds. And I went into magazine journalism. I thought I was going to become a famous like music journalist. And here I am, you know, as a science journal editor, so not quite how I thought it would play out. But in school, I was surrounded by some really fantastic, excellent writers. And while I always thought of myself as a pretty good writer, I have to say, you know, I had a bit of a crisis of consciousness during that time. It was like, oh, am I really that good? I don't know. Is this what I want to do? It's hard. You know, being a good writer is hard. And I admire all the people out there who can do it. So I plodded through my magazine journalism career up to the point of my last semester of my senior year, where I took a required class, and it was called magazine editing. And basically what this class was, and it was famed throughout the whole school, basically, as this make or break, do or die, you know really difficult course. And it was so difficult that I failed my first exam. This course was basically a crash course in grammar, which somehow back when I was growing up, if you were a quote unquote, you know, good writer, you kind of skirted around ever learning anything about grammar. I got to be a senior in college and didn't know the difference from a pronoun or a predicate. I didn't know anything about grammar. So it was a real rude awakening for me. And I had to get through this class. And fast forward to the end of it, you know, I aced the exam. And then it became a problem because I loved editing. I went through this course, learned all of the grammar, learned how to apply it to someone's written work. 
And it was like, oh no, I found what I love to do. And I'm getting kicked to the curb, you know, I'm graduating. And how do I regroup? So I did what any good, you know, recent graduate does. And I enrolled in graduate school. I stayed at the University of Missouri. I got my graduate degree in a program that I kind of made up. I supposedly have a Master of Arts with an emphasis in editing. So I made this program for myself, which included, I then went on to become the teaching assistant for this magazine editing class for the two years I was in graduate school. So I basically lived and breathed editing for a good chunk of my postgraduate education. And that became my path. I found that editing was my true passion. And it was something that I felt I was really good at. And it was something that came naturally and kind of more easily to me than writing, which was really difficult. So I was excited to find that path and pretty much set to work, uh, working on that path right away. That's really interesting. You know, you say that every editor is a failed author, but it doesn't sound like you failed as an author, but just that you found where your heart truly was by taking this one class. And I've heard that so many times from people where at some point in their journey, they take a class or they meet someone and their eyes are open and they say, holy cow, that's the thing I want to do for sure. Like that's where has this been the whole time? And then a light bulb comes on and then they kind of have to reshift and reimagine things. And it sounds like you did that and you went right for the thing that you wanted and became an editor. So you work for the University of Chicago Press, which is the home of the Chicago Manual of Style. And that is the preferred style guide for the book industry. So can you tell us what is a style guide? I guess the way I think of a style guide is something that gives the rules and we can use that however, you know, kind of harsh we want to say a rule is, but guidelines, suggestions for how to write. It's a resource that writers can use in any facet of their writing and really in any process of the whole work of publishing. You know, and style guides can be big. They can be small. There's no one size fits all style guide. There are style guides for different subject areas. There are business style guides. There are brand style guides. You could think of the dictionary as a style guide of sorts, but it's some sort of resource that when you need to write something and you have a question, whether it's grammar related or how do I format this complicated table? that I want to build? Or how do I write a figure legend for something? Or formatting? So it's just a good resource for pretty much any question that someone writing something to be published could consult with. Right. And I think it's really interesting in school, when you're in college or even in high school, maybe I forgot this day or was sick that day, but I don't ever remember getting told, this is the style guide that we're using. You should have the MLA style guide. This is this is what we're referencing here. But it is what is generally used. I remember going through those in our work. But besides MLA, 
What are some other popular style guides and, and what are those industries that they're used for? Mm-hmm. And you brought up an interesting point about the Chicago Manual style. They have their version kind of for students, which is like the Turabian, which many students use. And I think what's interesting, a point you mentioned specifically, is some of these style guides are used specifically for how do you work with references and citations, which is so important when writing a research paper of any kind. So that's also another thing that many style guides address is the particulars of, you know, literally, how do you structure a literature cited or bibliography? And do you use author date citations, etc.? So that is another important point about a style guide. But in addition to MLA, Modern Language Association, off the top of my head, and I have to admit, I'm not real well versed in some of these because I work at the University of Chicago Press. Of course, I'm familiar with Chicago Manual style. But when I was in journalism school, we were strictly based on the AP, Associated Press Style Guide. So that's another. And that's focused mainly on journalism, newspaper. Modern Language Association is a kind of catch-all, general, language art style, style guide. I know of the APA, the American Psychological Association. They have a style guide that's really well used, not just for psychology, but social sciences, humanities, things like that. There are even style guides I have in a, like I'm picturing my bookshelf at the office. Uh, There's a blue book style guide for law journals and law, how to write a law article and lawyer briefs. And frankly, even, you know, like I mentioned, journal style guides can be as small as things like the New York Times has their own style guide. Magazines can have their own guides. So it's really all-encompassing, just a set of common rules that specific publications or fields like to follow so authors can be consistent and so that publications can be consistent. And so what are some of the big differences between CMS and AP, for example? I know that you and I get authors that have been taught one way. And we often have to have the conversation that, you know, that's AP, that's the style guide for journalism and newspapers. This is CMS and it's different. And so we have to kind of go in and explain those differences and show them what book style is. What are some of the common things that you see as being different between the two? You know, it's interesting. When I started in graduate school, and you know, you need to figure out what your project or thesis is going to be on. And my original idea for my thesis was going to be a kind of knockdown, drag out comparison of AP versus the Chicago Manual Style, which I was not familiar with at the time. It frankly proved to be a little too difficult to figure out how I would even create something like that. Not only because they are so different, but because they serve different fields and different needs. So that is a question that is dear to my heart that I don't know that I've ever really figured out the answer to other than, you know, they're birds of the same feather. You know, I think of it as like a Mac and a PC. You know, these are both kind of the same thing, but they just have these little different parts, some not so little, that make them the preferred style guides of one or the other. The number one thing I think that 
comes to mind for many people, including myself, is the use of the serial comma. So for those of our listeners who are not familiar with this highly controversial topic, say you have a list of items of three things, red, white, and blue. The AP style guide suggests that you punctuate red, white, and blue as red, comma, white, and blue. Okay. The Chicago Manual suggests you punctuate red, white, and blue as red, comma, white, comma, and blue. So it's that extra comma before the and in a series of items that is the tipping point between the two styles. That's the serial comma, also known as the Oxford comma, some people know it as, from the Oxford University Press style book. I think the reason it takes that name, and I had to check my dates on this, I think the first pressing of the Oxford University Press style book came out in 1905, and the first edition of the Chicago Manual style, I believe, is 1906. So we just missed it becoming the Chicago comma. Instead, it's the Oxford comma. Um, That's one big style difference between the two guides. And it seems small, but there are those people who will really fight to the death for which one of those is right. It is kind of the hot topic of editors where, you know, either you feel one way or another and it's sort of a hill you're willing to die on or, you know, beat somebody (laughs) senseless over. Yeah. And it's what's interesting is I was brought up on the AP style with no comma, and then I had to learn to fight those deeply ingrained instincts to put that comma in. And now, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. (laughs) And really, the other things that come to mind are just simple things like how they treat titles, which again, I think speaks to AP being newspaper based. You know, they don't italicize titles. They keep those Roman and they treat the titles of newspapers differently. Capitalizing the the, I think, in newspaper titles, where Chicago makes it lowercase and not italic. You know what also is interesting? I think these days, oh, I haven't seen one in a while. The AP style guide is really thin, (laughs) but makes it useful in a different way. It's kind of like the greatest hits of everything you need to know in one place. And the Chicago Manual, which I frankly use online a lot, it's a pretty hefty book these days. I mean, I think it's, what, three, four hundred pages? It's huge. And it seems to get bigger with each edition. We're now on 17. So the size, the sheer size and what's in the content. Chicago looks at the publishing process holistically. And AP is just kind of, you know, this is what you need to get the work done right now and get it done fast and on deadline. Right. And isn't that so interesting how it's just built for speed, whereas books are really not built for speed. So you have the AP that's small, light, fast, to the point. And, you know, no offense to CMS, it goes a lot deeper because books are generally Mm -hmm. a lot more complex than a newspaper Mm -hmm. article would need to be. So they have to cover a lot more ground and explain more eventualities and possibilities that could happen in a book or a journal. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you have any idea of the history of how did CMS come to be the style guide for the book industry? I think the longevity is part of it. You know, it's been around for a very long time. It's been through 17 editions. And I think it's got a personality of its own. There are 
kind of like we talked about, you know, with commas, there are people who just have their preferred style guide. And because this one is so thorough and it's like a your kind of good-natured guide through the world of publishing, you know, it kind of holds your hand. It tells you every single thing you might possibly need to know that you might encounter in trying to publish a book or article or what have you. And I think it's just reliable. You know, it's got its fans and I think they help keep it alive. And I think it does what it does well. You know, how does anything become popular? It's people like it and it's a good thing that people like to go back to. I was thinking back to my editing days and how I learned to be an editor. And I learned the seven C's. And at the time it was probably of editing. I think there it, it applies to other fields like maybe writing and technical writing. I don't know. But the seven C's of how to be a good editor, which when I think of these, I think of the manual in this way. And, and why is it so successful? Because it's clear, it's consistent, it's concise, correct, coherent, complete, and credible. So I think all of those things add up to a resource that people can rely on and go back to every time it comes out with a new edition. And what's funny is you would think, you know, okay, why has there needed to be 17 editions of this one manual? Something I think about with style guides is they're kind of living, breathing things. They evolve over time and especially over time, you know, as trends change, as new words are introduced into our world. You know, the big hubbub was when Webster's and then CMOS took over when we lowercased internet or made website one word or took the hyphen out of email. You know, these are changes that happen that a style guide can address. And what's just so reassuring is that you have somewhere where if you don't know what the style is, you can go and look. And I think the Chicago Manual has been that for many people for many different reasons. It's definitely my favorite. I think you're probably a little partial, but oh, I agree. No. <laughs> so when you personally are editing a manuscript, the style guide is your true reference point, but you still have to make certain choices on how you treat unique things that come up in that manuscript. How do you as an editor create your own style guide for each manuscript? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's always nice to have the Chicago Manual sitting next to me or online and parts of it memorized. But just as in the way that style guides are evolving, I look at each piece that I edit as something unique that might have specific needs that a rigorous style guide might need to be a little bit more flexible for. So I always use an official style guide to drive my decisions. But one of the things I learned early on about how to be a good editor is you have to be flexible. And even the Chicago Manual, if you ever really get into it and read some of the guidance, sometimes it's really frustrating because most of the guidance is could be this way, or you might consider this. I don't believe there are 
many rules in the style guide that you really would consider rules where it says you must do something every single time. Even in Chicago's guidance, you know, there is some flexibility built in. Like we suggest this, but if you have a better reason for maybe not doing it this time, you should do that. And so that's how I look at different projects is like, what is this asking for? Is this a book that is highly technical, that has lots of data and numbers and technical aspects like that, where I might do something crazy and suggest that we use numerals for numbers over 10 instead of following Chicago's style where they would be spelled out. You know, I think it's tailored to what the piece needs. If it's something that's fiction or a business book with branding in it, you know, you have to be careful about changing capitalization of things. You know, some authors have created, you know, these really wonderful worlds with these specialized terms. And I don't always feel I'm the best person to go in there and tell them that's not what they should be doing. Here's a follow-up to, so I did not do my um, graduate thesis on Chicago versus AP style. I did, however, I don't know how I did this. I made a master's thesis that was basically about writer-editor relationships. And I interviewed lots of writers and editors and, you know, how does this process work? And I would go back and forth between the author. How did you feel you know, the editor made this change. And I would ask the editor, why did you make this change? Just to kind of understand how these two big players work together. And what I found during this research was sometimes the editor isn't always right. And even if the editor is right or thinks they're right, that's not always the point. If a author walks away being disappointed in the process or frustrated or not liking how their project turned out that they really poured their whole guts into, I think that's failed editing job. I think that's a bad editor. I think good editors are the ones who know when to make the right decisions. And it's, you know, it takes a long time to learn that, but being flexible and being open to what the author wants, I think is the first step. And I do that, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. And you can kind of get a sense of what's important to someone by the way they write something. And I just kind of keep track in my head and make a list, make mental notes of, you know, when I make a decision, whether to hyphenate something or how I'm going to capitalize it, that's pretty straightforward. And then the rest of it is is a little less so. Right. And so when you're talking about that, you know, making that list as you're going through the document, what is your process like when you're in their editing, doing the work? What does that look like for you? I love this question because I think every editor has variations. You know, I think every editor generally has some of the same things, but also, you know, everyone's different. And when I train new editors on how to edit things, you know, it's like, this is how I do it. But if you ask someone else, you might get different answers. I usually read the entire manuscript from start to finish, however long that will take. And I just read it through. I usually don't stop. I make comments to myself or I'll highlight something that I want to go back and check. Because I read it through the first time just to get the sense of like, what is this? 
What is this trying to do? What's the author trying to say? What do I need to be aware of? And I'll just kind of flag things for myself as I read along and making decisions along the way, you know, with question marks attached to them. You know, like I think I'm deciding this, you know, where does it go from here? I personally, I do all of my kind of cleanup editing just for basic punctuation, you know, during this first read to get all of the kind of nitty gritty stuff out of the way. And then sometimes if I'm lucky, you know, after I've done this full first read, maybe I'll have a day or so, depending on schedules, to kind of digest what I've just read and think back to some of those things that stopped me or that I had questions about. And then I will read it again. And I'll start from the beginning. And now knowing, you know, what it is and what it's about and the questions that I have in my mind, you know, I'll come upon those questions that I have inserted on the first round. And I think by that point, I have a better sense of, okay, how do I want to address this question that I didn't know how to address when I hadn't read this yet? So I'll look at those questions and sometimes usually fix those things there or address those questions and make changes at that time and then continue on. Or sometimes I'll still be stuck on those and we'll leave it for something to go back once I have finished the second full read. So it really is like a deep dive into the text and thinking about it like an editor, but also really trying to think about it like the reader, because I am reading it and I'm trying to, you know, engage with it in one part of my brain, you know, like an editor and in the other part, like, okay, I'm reading this. Does this make sense to me? And not only does this sentence make sense to me, but does this all work together? So I hopefully by the end of the second read, you know, have addressed most everything. Rarely will I do a full hard read, like all the way through on my kind of first round of editing. But if I have questions to clean up at the end, then I will for sure by the end of the second read, have a better sense of how to fix those and then just kind of polish things up. And then the one thing that is a big part of what I do and what editors do is the art of querying. And I really call it that. Writing queries, I think, is one of the most difficult things that editors do. And these are questions that we have for the author that we insert in the text for them to review and respond to and possibly make further changes about. So in the same way that I'm reading a text to be flexible and to serve the author, I'm also writing queries that are as annoyingly tactful as I could possibly be. There is a high, high level of tact that needs to be employed in writing queries to authors. They're the pros. They're the ones who love this piece that they have submitted. You know, we want to interact with them in a way that really honors their work. And, you know, instead of saying, this sentence doesn't make any sense, you know, can you please rewrite it? Or this is the worst sentence I've ever read. I can't believe you wrote this. You know, as an editor, you really need to think of a better way to say that. And again, I don't know if that's luck from the excellent information I learned about writer-editor relationships, but 
it's a real important part of what we do and how we do it. And I think that comes from years of working on these manuscripts and, and coming to terms with the fact that you do read it two or three times. And maybe the first time you read it, you might be a little snarky or, you know, what in the heck is this? Why would you say this? And then as you keep going through that, you get it more, you understand it better, you understand the author better, and you're able to kind of, with tact, go more easily at the real heart of the actual question that you need to ask. Oh, yeah. Sometimes the second or third or fourth time you read something, it's not nearly as bad as the first time you did. And you're like, oh, I I get it now. Exactly. Right. <laughs> well, thank you, Devin, so much for your time today. I really appreciate all of the great information. And I really hope that people who are interested in having the Jenkins Group do a book or having us do some editing can listen to this podcast and better understand what it means to have an editor work on their book and really the depth to which you go and the depth of your knowledge in working on their book and, and all the skill that it takes. So thank you very thank much you for all your time. Thank you. Here's to uh, 24 more, more years. Here's the 24 more years. Let's keep going. Thanks so much. Thanks, Devin. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Concept to Cover. Find out more about the show and our guests at concepttocoverpodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Bye for now.